In this two-part interview, we speak with two guest experts on the Defense Personal Property Program, or DP3 program for short, with Director Mr. Rick Marsh and Mr. Bradley Richardson, an attorney advisor for U.S. Transcom. The DP3 program deals with the movement of household goods and POVs, non-temporary storage, and the DOD management framework. We discuss the challenges faced by the DP3 program, innovative solutions that the team is working on, and how they conduct strategic communication with their stakeholders. Here are a few clips from part one of today's show. Uh, really the program, I mean, it's huge. It's about a $3 billion a year enterprise. You know, we do you know, roughly 400,000 uh, of these moves a year. Uh, there's about 950 uh, household goods providers. One way to enforce standards is to enforce a contract. When you have 400,000 contracts running around there per year, how are you gonna do that? Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. So welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. This helps us to grow and outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. In today's interview, we plan to discuss the Defense Personal Property Program, known as the DP3 Program, which deals with movement of household goods, movement of POVs, non-temporary storage, and, and other things as well. And we have two guests that we're going to speak with today. Mr. Rick Marsh, the director of the DP3 program, and Mr. Bradley Richardson, an attorney advisor for U.S. Transcom. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. So Mr. Rick Marsh is a member of the Senior Executive Service, or SES, and is the current director of the Defense Personal Property Program, known as the DP3 program, at U.S. Transportation Command at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois. U.S. Transcom conducts globally integrated mobility operations, leads the broader joint deployment and distribution enterprise, and provides enabling capabilities in order to protect and sustain the joint force in support of national objectives. Mr. Bradley Richardson is an attorney advisor for U.S. Transcom. In his military capacity, he is a judge advocate, individual mobilization augmentee, or IMA, assigned to AFJACL as a litigation attorney. So, Mr. Marsh, could you start off by providing a little more background on your current position and what you do? Hey, absolutely. Hey, thanks again for, for having us. Uh, so, as the director of the Defense Personal Property Program, uh, my job is to be uh, an advocate uh, and a champion for, for DOD families in the relocation process to integrate the operational, contractual, financial, IT uh, aspects of the Defense Personal Property Program and then just drive uh, broader reforms. Uh, and Mr. Richardson, can you also provide a little more background on your current position and what you do? Sure. I'm designated as an acquisition attorney. And, you know, when you look at my, uh, you know, personnel document, you know, just says your typical stuff, you know, contract reviews, you know, in litigation, if we go up to the government accountability office or the court of federal claims, I'll serve as of counsel, which basically means I have cradle to grave legal responsibility uh, of a particular contract. Uh, leading all the way up to award and uh, performance uh, of that contract. As far as in the defense personal property program, 
I tend to take a more of a guidance role and be more integrated as a team member. I end up being at the very, very basic groundwork of a particular action that we're taking. It might be a contract, it may be reforming of rules, but I'm really part of the beginning of any type of change that uh, Mr. Marsh and his team uh, are planning to do. Well, thank you for that. So kind of uh, diving into our, the substance of our discussion today, um, Mr. Marsh, I kind of wanted to start off by just asking you a very broad question of what is the Defense Personal Property Program? The Personal Property Program is the, is the mechanism, it's the enterprise uh, that, that supports the relocation of, of DOD personnel uh, to their next uh, duty assignment or to their uh, home of record in case of a, a retirement. Uh, really, the program, I mean, it's huge. It's about a $3 billion a year enterprise. And I break it down into into four components. Uh, there's an element that handles you know household goods and unaccompanied baggage shipments uh, between duty stations. You know we do you know roughly 400,000 uh, of these moves a year. Uh, there's about 950 uh, household goods providers uh, that are that have signed up to do business with us. Uh, we don't have a formal contract with any of them currently, uh, and we spend a little over two billion dollars a year in that element. We have uh, uh, one element of the program that deals with the movement of privately owned vehicles. Uh, we do just over 60,000 vehicle shipments a year. Uh, we store about 7,000 shipments a year. Uh, we do have a single award uh, contract industry partner uh, that, that we deal with. Uh, and this is about you know, $200 million a year in annual spend. We have a third element that manages the non-temporary storage of, of household goods uh, when service members typically uh, in, a, in conjunction with an overseas assignment. At any given time, we have about 60,000 lots in storage. Uh, there's another 800 or so providers uh, that support this program. You know, Again, uh, no, no formal contract. Uh, and there's about $100 million in spend here. And then the fourth element is, is DOD's management framework. You know, again, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. Uh, at the installation level, there's about 300 offices that the services own that handle you know, the counseling, the, the, doing the quality assurance, uh, tasks associated with a household goods pickup or delivery. Uh, the services have another 42 regional shipping offices that handle you know, what we refer, what we refer to as the as the back office functions. Right, they do the the ordering of services with industry. Between these offices, you know, it's about uh, you know, it's several thousand people um, and, and a couple hundred million dollars in spend uh, just managing those. Uh, and then that that management framework you know, deals with a broader set of stakeholders across the DoD. Uh, integrating with the personnel community, integrating with the logistics community, the military claims offices, uh, the defense travel management office uh, in terms of entitlement, uh, and then the OSD staffs, right? The uh, both on the acquisition and systemic side, and then the personnel and readiness side. So it's a pretty significant program. I mean, it really touches just about every member uh, of the DoD, uh, and certainly ripe uh, for reform. Well, thank you, sir. Um, yes, this program is clearly a massive program, and I think everyone that's that's been in the DoD for any uh, period of time, whether military or civilian, has had personal experiences with it, right, right, from PCSing and, and to other issues where this touches um, folks. Could you maybe also briefly address just the history of this program and maybe what you've even seen through your career, how it's changed over time? There's been some aspect of the program, you know, as long as as long as you know, folks have been moving around the globe. But I guess the you know, the most important aspects of the history are, are the are the issues that we see with it, right? The the enduring issues that we've seen literally for decades. Uh, you know, one that our assignment cycle 
uh, exerts a lot of strain on industry capacity, particularly during the summer months. Uh, the second that our, our very transactional nature of our relationship really prevents us from capitalizing on the capacity that is available. Uh, and then the third, internally, you know, that management framework I talked about is just internally, we're very fractured. Th- those are the problems that we're trying to solve. And I think the the foundational themes of our history, right, uh, that we'll uh, revisit pretty often during this conversation. Yes, sir. And you had mentioned that there are certain aspects within these different sections of the program that are fairly um, ripe for review or perhaps to reevaluate kind of how we do those. Is there anything there that uh, maybe you'd like to address? Well, I think the, uh, you know, the the three things that General Alliance has us laser focused on is in you know in, improving the the quality capacity within the program. Uh, I, th- I think we've absolutely seen some improvements over the last couple of years in terms of the customer satisfaction surveys, but there's you know there's still four to five percent of of the customers that that report you know an unsatisfactory or a poor move. You know, when things go wrong, things seem to go really, really wrong. Uh, so really focused on on raising the level of standard within the program. Uh, the second thing he has is focused on uh, is, in, is accountability, right? I mean, as I mentioned in the overview, we have a, we have a you know, transactional relationship with over a thousand providers with no formal contract, right? So from an accountability perspective, there, there, there's a lot to, uh, to be desired. And then just internally from a responsibility perspective, when folks have a problem, you know, who can they go to for help? You know, who is ultimately responsible for the management of this program? I mean, there's a, there's a ton of stakeholders and General Alliance has, has put Transcom into the breach as far as responsibility uh, for, for this program goes, which is a role, uh, you know, I really enjoy and, and, and welcome. And for me and everybody that, that has worn the uniform, that has worked in, that is working right now in, in this reform effort, it's a very personal thing. I spent four years on active duty, you know, had two moves. For JAGs in particular, it's really the first military thing that you do. You go and you take the oath. Most of us are, are, are called direct commission officers. So we take the oath, we're officers before we even go to any training. And you really don't know what to do at that moment. However, you get this list, and one of the things on, on the list is to go uh, go and get counseled for your move because you're going to be going to a new duty location. And so that's the really the first thing that you do that's actually military. Uh, so I went to Fort Belvoir uh, to the military person, the Army personnel property, personal property office, and I went through my pre-move counseling. And then I went off to commission officer training and my wife had to deal with it. That was her first introduction to the military, which was a household good move. And it didn't go great, I'll be honest. And so for those of us that are involved in this, it's a very personal thing to help the people that are moving, the service members, DOD and their families, to have better household good moves, better POV good POV moves, et cetera. It's a very personal thing, and it's, and it's something that everybody in the program is really committed to. Yes, thanks for that comment, and I, I can kind of concur with that too. I mean, similar situation with my wife um, through a move, and, and that was an overseas move as well, so even added to the complexity of it. And I think we all as military members can relate. Um, we've all had different experiences with them, these moves. And I know um, you both had mentioned as we were prepping for this discussion today just about how the current system is set up and how you mentioned, Mr. Marsh, there's about 900 providers or so, I believe you said, for um, – movement of household goods. 
I, I guess what's the the current status of that as far as are, are they looking to try to make this more of a streamlined process in some way or where's kind of you and your team um, on that particular issue? No, that's a great question. So I, I think bef- you know, before I get into the, you know, the, the solution that has been proffered, right, the global household goods contract, which addresses the, you know, that household goods element of the program, uh, I, I think it's important just to you know, talk about why the, you know, the challenges we see in the status quo, right? And we have you know, briefings full of facts and figures, but, you know, but, but our inability to consistently deliver you know, a quality capacity, an acceptable level of performance at the curb really boils down to three figures. Uh, so the first is, you know, as I mentioned, we spend over $2 billion a year in packing and transportation services. We're 15 to 20% of the domestic market, and we don't act like the major customer that we are, right? So part of it is about using our, you know, using our market share uh, to, to raise uh, the standard of service for, for military families. The second is that you mentioned the, you know, the, the more than 900 providers. You know, all of them, again, have, have uh, you know, met you know, min- a minimum screening, right? They've all agreed to operate in line with our business rules, but we don't have an enduring contract with any of them. And then the third element, you know, I mentioned those 42 regional shipping offices. Uh, so the way this works is that each of those 42 shipping offices deals with some subset of uh, those you know, more than 900 providers uh, and awards shipments, awards business on a shipment by shipment basis. So this transactional approach means that you know, we don't give industry any meaningful forecast of what they can expect to move uh, which means they don't have any real basis uh, to invest in relationships with with quality agents or assets to to respond to you know what what ends up being a very predictable you know summer period. So not only does that really fractured uh, you know operational construct keep us from maximizing our market share and tapping into available capacity, it also stymies our efforts to hold industry accountable. You know, there's we always get questions you know from families and from Congress about what we're doing to hold industry accountable, and there's there's a ton of activity. You know, last year the services issued, you know, 50,000 letters of warning and another 2,000 suspensions when you know industry partners operated outside the bounds of, of our rule set. Uh, but because they're handled, you know, by 42 separate offices, it doesn't translate into meaningful outcomes, right? I mean, a, a company could be suspended in one region and continue to operate uh, in every other region. So that that that's what we're trying to get after. You know, again, change the conditions within which industry is operating to improve the level of service, uh, improve our access to quality capacity, uh, and really drive accountability in the program when things go wrong. And then from a legal standpoint, you know, Mr. Marsh shared a, a, a statistic earlier, there's 400,000 moves. Those are 400,000 what are called tenders. Those are little individual contracts between a transportation service provider and the government. And I never reviewed a tender uh, when I was uh, at the base legal office. Um, I didn't, you know, and and I still don't, you know. And so one way to enforce standards is to enforce a contract. When you have 400,000 contracts running around there per year, how are you going to do that? So that's a big thing that from the legal side that we'd like to see corrected. Yes. And I think we're going to be talking about this um, issue more as through this discussion. It's a fascinating one. And I think one that I know that everyone's looking at to to see what we can do to, to improve. One of the other points here um, I wanted to kind of briefly discusses the movement to COCOM or the centralizing movement to a joint combat command that specializes in uh, global logistics and war fighting, which um, is part of the, the program here. Would either of you like to discuss that? Sure, I can uh, I, I can dive on that. So, so to be clear, what we're talking about, that move to 
the, the U.S. Transportation Command staff was just the, the program management staff, the staff that manages the, you know, the business rules, uh, the policy, develops the enabling IT. Uh, you know what's what we're not talking about is the you know the C2 construct of the you know that broader network of installation and shipping offices I talked about right I mean that is still resident within the services and and not part of the uh, movement to the transcom staff uh, so in, until 2018 you know that program management staff uh, you know right about you know about 60 people uh, was part of the surface deployment and distribution command you know again an, an army component of transcom there were a few folks at, at transcom headquarters working policy issues. Uh, there was a separate section in what's called our program executive office that managed the IT development. Uh, so you had you know the day-to-day management in one of our components, and then the policy and IT uh, handled uh, at, at the Transcom staff. Uh, so our commander at that time you know moved that operational element that was in SDDC uh, to to the Transcom staff. And with that in mind, maybe we can kind of um, jump over to the, another topic, um, which is just dealing with contracting. Because so much of this is based on contract, as both of you have mentioned, can can one of you maybe just discuss that from from a kind of a very general standpoint on how these contracts are set up? There's an overview you could provide for the listeners. I can do that. So as I said before, the the current way that we do things is is called a tender. If you've ever shipped a package through the post office, you essentially did a tender. You it's it's a a transportation bill uh, to move something. And what we're moving towards is rather than doing a whole bunch of tenders, we're moving towards doing single point contracts. So you have a move manager that is going to manage all the flow of household goods, uh, private vehicles, both from point A to point B, but also maybe point A to temporary storage, and then ultimately someday to point B. So we're moving away from doing those individual tenders with individual service providers. And then we'll have essentially a prime contract uh, that has lots of subcontractors, but there's always going to be that single point of contact that trans that United States Transportation Command will have with a, a contractor. So when things go wrong, we know exactly who to call rather than sorting through a, a whole bunch of layers of uh, contractor of subcontractors. I, I can remember there was uh, an issue with creating uh, one of my wife's tables. It was something that her grandfather had left her and we got, you know, uh, approval to have a special crating, but you know, the, the transportation service provider didn't have the crate, but we didn't know who to call. And it ended up getting through three or four layers of, of subcontracts before we got to the person who authorizes the crate. And so um, the result was it was shipped without a crate. And what do you know? It got damaged. Uh, So this will kind of change that. And then we just have that one single point of contact. Yes, thank you for that. And as you gentlemen know, you know, in this podcast show, we like to discuss things related to innovation and leadership. It seems to me that based on what your response is there, that this is a step in the right direction towards some new type of innovation within the contracting world. Would you say that's a fair statement? I would. So we're going to do what's called an IDIQ contract, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. So that means we're going to have task orders that are going to replace the tender system. And yes, we will have 400,000 task orders under at least the global household goods contract, not to mention uh, the other contracts that we're working. When we're talking about innovation and contracting, I can hear every single lawyer out there saying, great, you did a contract. Oh, my gosh. And, And usually when people come to me and say, 
hey, I, I want to do a contract to go do this thing. I usually ask them, well, why aren't we doing it ourselves? Why isn't the Department of Defense or the military doing it themselves? Why don't we have the organic resources to do this? With that said, though, this is a little bit different where industry has always uh, performed this function for us. It is not something that we're replacing a organic resource that we already have at our disposal. You know, an example is some people always want to contract out aircraft maintenance. There are some aircraft maintenance contracts out there, but that is something that the Air Force does and does very, very well. And we need that function for warfighting. So that's not a good idea to always to contract something like that out. When you have something that we are traditionally doing with industry, um, then we need to change the way that we approach it. And so I came into global household goods in the middle of it, you know, in the middle of while we we're evaluating offerors uh, who want to go uh, perform this contract. And when I picked up what's called the performance work statements, which establishes all of the duties that we want the contractor to do, I expected to see a service contract because this is a service and service contracts are usually pretty detailed, uh, you know, like maybe cleaning a building. There's 50 rooms in a building. We need the trash taken out. We need the floors mopped. We tell the contractor exactly what we want them to do. When I picked up this, I thought we were literally procuring what looked to be a weapon system. We had open-ended duties under there, but very specific standards. We need a contractor to do this general service. Here are your standards that we're going to hold you to, but you're going to tell us how you're going to do it. That's not usually what we do in a service contract, as I said before, you know, so for example, you know, from the performance work statement, we have some standards on how we want the offeror to interact with the customer. Um, We don't want them to go through three or four layers of people uh, to go get an answer to a question. So our standard is you're going to have a single point of contact. You're going to establish contact with the customer within one day of receiving a task order from us. And we have a scheduling timeline that we're going to hold you to. Now go out and tell us how you're going to do it. And then we let industry be the technological driver on this. You know, we have market research on what the industry can do but we're going to let them drive the innovation. So we didn't tell them how they're going to communicate with all of our different customers. Uh, The other thing that we're doing in this is we really flipped on who is the customer. You know, usually in government contracting, the government is the customer. You want to make the government happy. Here, we're saying that DOD civilians, DOD service members, and their families are the customer. Transcom, certainly, we're going to be there holding you accountable, but we're going to be really feeding off what our customer base uh, is providing us. And so I see that as, as innovative. It's very nuanced, but it is something that is different than what we normally do under a service contract. And Mr. Marsh, um, you had mentioned earlier, um, at least with respect to the movement of household goods, that you had somewhere between 4 to 5% of an unsatisfactory rate. And some of your main initiatives are to improve standards and customer satisfaction and accountability. Um, from your position as the, as the director, what um, do you see you know, as far as innovation and or leadership approaches that are being taken here? No, so I, I think going back to you know, you know, Mr. Richardson's point on you know, what, what the PWS looks like, right? So for a long time in the program, 
uh, our focus was being very prescriptive on how industry should do things versus you know what we wanted to have happen at the curb. I mean, if you looked at our regs, you know, previously it was it was very clear that every time an issue popped up, we wrote a rule to fix it, right? I mean, down to how thick craft paper has to be wrapping upholstery items, right? I mean, it's it's insane. Well, and the feedback we got from industry was. Um, you know, it was a deterrent to new entrants joining the program, right? I mean, we, we pay very competitive rates. Uh, I mean, we are a we're a reliable customer, but we were an onerous customer, right? I mean, the, the the rule sets we had were so complicated, were so it just it wasn't worth doing business with us. Um, you know, again, I mentioned we're twenty percent of the market. You know, th- th- there are uh, there were customers who were choosing to do business with you know the other eighty percent, right? The, the purely commercial business. Uh, simply because uh, we were too hard to do business with. So when we wrote the PWS, you know, we, we just we spent a lot of time thinking about the outcomes that we wanted from the program. And honestly, it wasn't it wasn't that hard to come up with those those outcomes. I mean, we we just listened to what families had been telling us all along, right? And it's they're not asking for VIP moves. They're not asking for white glove service. It's 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 basic things, right? Just you know, better communication. Just you know, treat me with respect. Treat treat my belongings with respect. Answer the phone when I call. Um, solid IT, right? I mean, just you know, a system that's not you know, I don't have to be tied to a CAC and a you know, government workstation to log in and hopefully figure out you know what's happening with my move. And then when do things go wrong? You know, just the, just the the knowledge, just the certainty that you know, industry will be held accountable uh, when they fail customers. And, and I, I want to go back to the earlier discussion on, you know, it's it's easy to have a discussion on, hey, tenders and contracts. And, you know, to be clear, there's, in, in my view, there's nothing inherently wrong with tenders, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a tool in the department's toolkit. Um, the, the problem with our program is that, is that we let the program evolve in a manner uh, that favored industry, right? And that, that's not industry's fault, right? I mean, <laughs> industry is operating in the in the environment that we established. You know, we have a lot of companies that are that are focused on delivering a quality product. A lot of them do a really great job on the customer on the customer service front. But there are also cus- uh, many companies who entered this program, they're in it, and now they view being in it as an entitlement. And as long as we're running this structure, we are tied really to the lowest common denominator of service available. And, and then, so this is where that transactional model comes in, right? That, that Brad talked about shipment by shipment. You know, we have really great companies that do a super job packing and storing household goods, but they're not IT companies, right? I mean, we can't expect them to deliver a, a world-class uh, IT or even a even a, uh, a standard IT system, right? I mean, I think about Uber in this instance, right? Not the, the takeaway can't be Marsh is trying to be the Uber of uh, household goods, <laughs> but but think about how terrible Uber would be if every driver had its own IT interface. It only works because there's a you know an umbrella entity that's providing you know that IT platform for all those independent operators uh, to plug into. Are we going to move to an app then for uh, our our movement of household goods? So we we are we are going to have a uh, you know part of the contract is developing is deploying a customer portal. Absolutely, you know we have proven that we cannot do it. Right? I mean, I can't do basic things like send a text message that a driver's on the way to pick up your house. I can't do a very simple thing, you know, that you see in every aspect of your life on the claims process that you can, I don't know, take, you know, take a picture of damage and upload it into the claims portal. Right. I mean, I can't do that. Uh, industry's doing it today. So, you know, this is, you know, this is where, you know, you know, Brad and I see it a little different on the innovation front. And I understand his perspective on, you know, the, the nuanced, 
you know, innovative aspects, uh, innovative aspects on, the, on, you know, potentially in contracting. But from an innovation perspective in, you know, what we push to the curb, no, I'm, I'm just trying to change the conditions so that, you know, movers within the military system can have the same kind of experience that movers out of the military system have, right? I mean, the, we're not asking industry to develop anything new to us. We want industry to develop, to, to deliver to us what already exists in the marketplace today. Really, the difference is scale, right? I mean, we're a, we will be the biggest customer. Uh, as I see it, that's the main difference. That concludes part one of the interview with Mr. Rick Marsh and Mr. Bradley Richardson. Please tune into part two where we continue the discussion on the DP3 program. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes along with others at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.